And this is View of the Valley's podcast with TJ Hoover and Chris Smith. TJ, how you doing today? Oh, I'm doing great. Happy to be here again, as always. Looking forward to a really busy weekend. And, uh, you know, here we are on Friday, but happy belated birthday to you. Turned uh, big 2-5 yesterday. Is that right? Yep. Turned 25 yesterday. Uh, I officially feel old. I, w- I woke <laughs> up, my left knee popped. I'm like, nope, there it is. I'll give you old. Thinking about this, the year you were born is the year I started dating my wife. So you think you feel old. I mean, it shows that how old I am. And I mean, we've got a busy weekend in our household. Three boys, all three birthdays this weekend. Oh, wow. One tomorrow, the twins on Sunday, obviously Father's Day coming up. So happy Father's Day to all the fathers out there. But uh, yeah, this is a kind of a chaotic weekend for my wife because she's trying to get stuff for Father's Day, the boys' birthdays. And, uh, you know, so we'll have plenty of dining out things. That's one of the things we do in our families. Like, it's your birthday. You get to choose where you want to go eat. So we'll start tonight and, uh, you know, be running up some tabs and places that we can actually get into, you know, and uh, enjoy the weekend. How about you? How are you doing today? Not doing too bad. Um, me co- uh, coaching a club baseball team for the summer. We got a tournament this weekend in Missouri. So it was supposed to have been in Illinois, but with all the restrictions, it got moved to Missouri. So not looking forward to the drive, but at least we're getting some games in, you know, this summer. But it looks like you're going to have a quite the variety of food options this weekend yeah so it'll be interesting to see what the boys choose this weekend and uh you know people say we have them clustered together it's like i'm just thankful we have it six months away from christmas so we get we can finally (laughs) recover from the christmas bills and then we get the birthday bills so but during today's episode we give you our opinion on multiple aspects regarding the ncaa tournament trey meyer joins the show Meyer was on John Cooper's staff at Tennessee State and is currently an assistant coach with Presbyterian College, which is located in Clinton, South Carolina. Trey Meyer is also a founding member of the Rising Coaches Elite. At the end of the show, we do our Mount Rushmore on Loyola and Moorhead State. But first things first, TJ, let's get into the NCAA tournament here. And what is your thoughts on the playing games? So the playing games, should the should conference tournament winners be placed in a playing game? Or do you think if you win your conference tournament, you should automatically be one of those top 16 seeds? I think because they always kind of move it around. It's kind of a weird situation. Sometimes it's the two 16 seeds. Sometimes it's the, the 15s, how, how they put it. But I think those teams, if you earn your tournament's bid, you should be one of those first, I was at 59 teams then because they figure 60 through 68 are those sure. playing games. But I think you should be, I guess it would be one of the top 60, but I think that's where you should be. If you didn't win your conference tournament, you didn't get the automatic bid, you haven't earned it in the, in the, in the sense that those other teams, like, hey, we did what we had to do to get here. So I think that's understandable that those other teams should have to play an extra game. I mean, Rare is the Florida Gulf Coast that wins their league tournament, gets in, they play in a play-in game, and then have a great run. Sure. But I think it's more advantageous. It's more of a reward because you did what was set out for you to do. This is the goal. This is your goalpost. That's what you, you should be rewarded for that or not uh, deducted on, not hurt by it. So when I look at it, and and I'll give you an example here, um, now, since I am doing my Mount Rushmore Moorhead State, you know, at the end of the show, um, the year before or two years before Moorhead State 
beat Louisville in the NCAA tournament. The year before, they were in the CBI tournament, I think. Uh-huh. But that previous year, they were in a play-in game, and they beat, I believe it was Alabama State. And so the, they were both in that playing game for that 16 seed, and Moorhead State was the tournament winner. And the one part I look at is, you know, maybe the I'm sure the committee feels that, okay, these are some of the teams for maybe a lower-tier conference during that season. They don't feel as they're respected enough to get one of those top top 16 seeds, whatever the case right. may be. So they're put in that playing game to try and prove that they're worthy of getting to that next spot. However, um, if you look at it from a university standpoint, me personally, I feel like if you win your conference tournament, you should not have to be in a playing game. Now, having said that, if you're in a lower-tier conference, I think it could go either way on thoughts. Like, if you're in a lower-tier ter- conference uh, mid-major, you may be excited to play another team in that playing game that's more along your level. So that gives you a chance to win a game in the NCAA tournament because you win that playing game, it still counts as a win. Right. Yep. And for a coaching resume, I'm definitely like, yeah. well, yeah, I'll, <laughs> I'll take that game and get my get my win, and you know, in three years, nobody will remember. Exactly. So I, I think some universities see that as a, well... This will put us on the map because everybody and their brother and sister watches those playing games because they're True. still exciting True, to watch. What two, like four per day or two per night? I think it's yeah. four playing games total, so two, two on each day. Exactly. So they're going to get the exposure, and it also gives them a chance to play against a team that's more across their level before they get, you know, placed. Let's say, I don't know, some some team in the. I don't know. A P5 that's, you know, the 2C that you, you know, you and, you know, Moorhead State were the 215 seeds, and now you go, and now you're playing, you know, Virginia. Exactly. And, and you like have, that. And you have a chance to basically lose by 45 to 50. And it's like, well, yeah, we got to the NCAA tournament, but it, we didn't even really accomplish yeah. anything. Yeah, I think they used to call them the watch teams. I don't know if those kids still get watches for appearing in the NCAA tournament. They were the watch teams. Like, you come in, you you play the one of the P5s, you get your watch, and you go home. Hey, we played in the NCAA yeah. tournament. But, you know, I've thought of that, too, like that kind of that bragging rights or that, that resume builder for coaches and programs. Like, hey, we got a NCAA tournament win. So you never know. Yeah, so it could go either way. Um, but another factor in the NCAA tournament – comes down to the power five teams and those mid-majors when it really comes down to those teams on the bubble so do you think power five teams are still worthy of an at-large if they finish their regular season with 13 to 15 losses i don't and i kind of look at it more where do they finish in their league you know and i think we would have maybe had a uh, a real discussion this year had we had the NCAA tournament because they were looking at how many big 10 teams were going to get in there that people oh, yeah. were talking 6 7 8 teams out of a 14 team league and i understand going and playing you know michigan indiana illinois wisconsin day in and day out is different than playing loyola northern sure. iowa southern illinois but at the same time you have to win those games you can't just sit there and go like, well, we competed. The, you know, if you think of a team gets, if they're slightly above 500, maybe they're 18 and 14, and, you know, most of their losses are in league, well, then you got to look, well, how many of your 
league wins did you have and how many of those were by games against lower caliber schools that are from the mid majors or the low majors that that to me you didn't you didn't do anything there you didn't do enough in my mind i'll say that i don't want to say you didn't do anything you didn't do enough to earn that bid over somebody like a northern iowa this year who yeah, they had a bad game in their ter- their conference tournament, but their season as a whole was pretty solid. Do they deserve to be in? I think they deserve to be in, and obviously I'm biased, over the sixth or seventh team in the Big Ten. Well, you bring up a good point where you say, so if you want to talk about the Big Ten, yeah, it's it's a brutal brutal stretch of, stretch of games. It really is. And, yeah, so you're going to be playing all those schools, and you may you may have – eight or nine, ten conference losses. And you brought up the point that said, okay, so if you're one of those teams that have eight or nine or ten losses in conference play, you finish at best in the middle of the pack, and then the majority of your non-conference wins are against lower-tier mid-major teams. So all that does is just it just uh, boosts your uh, your win total. And really, like you said, you're not doing enough because if you take away those lower tier mid-major teams and let's say you put some better power five conference teams on there or if you if you're you know your uh, schedule as, as a whole were to play against teams like illinois minnesota um ohio state michigan michigan state all those and you can't you can't beat those so if you take away your mid-major low mid-major wins you're probably not going to even finish with a winning record. Right. So if you take that all into consideration, why should they be deserving of a spot over, you know, you said Northern Iowa. I'll bring in East Tennessee State as an example. Mm-hmm. You may not win your conference tournament, but you go 28-4. and four, I mean, there is real talent there. And those schools like Northern Iowa, East Tennessee State, um, they don't have the ability to play – you know, that many power five schools on their schedule. Could they? Yes. Will they? No, because you play seven of those games. Yeah, you're really helping your budget and you're giving those power five schools a, a quality opponent. But if you lose all seven of those games, I mean, chances are you're not getting in as an at large. Right. And you're going to have to play anyway. those, I would say, of those seven you're playing at least five on the road as a true road game. Yeah. Because, you know, Minnesota's not going to go to Northern Iowa. Um, and then are those other two, are they neutrals? You know, you're playing them in MTE because that's really the only opportunity those yeah. schools have. Now, I, you know, I haven't looked at the st- statistics lately, but you look at those top tier schools, your Blue Bloods, your Duke, your North Carolina, Kentucky, and the number of true road games that they play is not very high no, outside of their conference play. I mean, it's, it, part of it's they want to be at home. They know they can sell out. That's going to feed their budget. But on some level, there's, there's a different challenge of going someplace and playing in a hostile environment that maybe isn't a conference game, someplace unfamiliar to you. Well, and I know that the NCAA committee puts teams in with, you know, those Power 5 teams with 13, 15 losses because they make more money than, you know, those mid-major schools. They bring in more revenue and more people are going to watch from those higher up universities because the enrollment's bigger and the fan base is bigger. But I think there is something to be said for there are 
a lot more college basketball fans and even other fans that don't don't watch college hoops like during the regular season that tune in for the NCAA tournament, whether it's to bet on it or just to watch a game. But there are so many people that root for the underdog. Right. And I'll even use a, a college baseball term here. Stony Brook was in the College World Series back when I was, I think I was in grade school. Mm-hmm. I even bought a shirt because they were playing right. against some very good competition. But they weren't expected to beat certain teams, but they were so good. I got on their bandwagons. I'm like, you know, I want to see this team succeed. And I think that goes a long way for the NCAA tournament as well. Right. And they usually every year they come out with the numbers. And people that economists that are much smarter than I am and much better with numbers. Like even if you take uh, UMBC, who beat Virginia two years ago, was the first 16 seed to, to win over a one seed. The billions of dollars of kind of advertising that that sure. created for the school. They talked about how many more people applied to go to school there. You know, I, you talk about the baseball tournament. I remember Wichita State that they they made a run at the national title, and that's when they kind of came on my map or on my radar, so to speak. But it just does so much for those schools, and I think the schools in both of our conferences really look at that. That's why you know, as an alum of SIU Carbondale, it's important to me that the basketball team become nationally relevant again because that in, in turn helps your university i mean loyola has seen you know how much of an increase just because of their title run, or the, you know their final four run a couple of years ago well yeah and you know two years back when the ovc had two teams get in with belmont and murray state and both of them won a game in the ncaa tournament that year belmont was in a playing game and um i think murray state beat marquette that year um but that just showed that you can have two teams from a mid-major conference, whether it be the OVC, the Missouri Valley, um, maybe the Sun Belt, you know, an, another conference comparable like that, where you can get two teams in and the committee shouldn't be afraid of, well, this is just going to be a waste of an opportunity for a team. No, they have a chance to really make an upset here and, right. and, and represent the league. So that'll wrap up the uh, NCAA tournament talk here. But with that, let's bring in Trey Meyer. All right, we are joined by Trey Meyer, who is an assistant coach at Presbyterian College in Clinton, South Carolina, but also spent time on John Cooper's staff at Tennessee State as a grad assistant, then director of basketball operations. He is also the founding member of the Rising Coaches Elite. Trey, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. How about yourself? Oh, we're doing pretty good. Enjoying the uh, nice weather. Hoping it doesn't get too warm here in uh, the middle of the country. Um, yep. Oh, that's that's awesome. We're getting we're getting pretty hot here today. I think it's supposed to get up to 90 tomorrow. So we're we're getting hit pretty hard with the heat. Well, uh, so our listeners can get to know you. How'd you get interested in coaching and uh, involved? And where have you been along the way? And how'd you land at Presbyterian? Mm-hmm. Well, to make a long story short, I think uh, just going back to my childhood, my grandfather was a high school coach. My uncle was a high school coach. My mom played college basketball. And my dad was in parks and recreation. So (laughs) I didn't really have much choice but to get involved in sports. So I grew up playing all different sports at a young age. But, uh, you know, as I got older and eventually went off to play, college basketball at Erskine College for one year. Um, I just 
always loved coaching, being around the game, studying the game. And I uh, started coaching AAU uh, my sophomore year in college after I transferred from Erskine. And that's when I really, really fell in love with it. Um, there was a family back where I was from, North Augusta, uh, who asked me to coach. They had two sons. And they asked me to coach them in the summer, and I coached them the whole summer and just absolutely loved it. And uh, that's how I ended up kind of getting hooked up with Clemson uh, as a student manager. Uh, that's where I finished my last three years of college. And then from there, I was fortunate that the staff there was able to help me, you know, get my foot in college basketball because that's it's a very, very hard thing to do. Uh, so, you know, going from Clemson, uh, I tried to get – uh, every job in the country probably thought I was going to be the next GA at Duke and quickly found out that was not going to happen and uh, really struck out trying to get into college coaching all the way up until about August. Um, I coached back with my former high school North Augusta the whole summer, so I was probably just going to coach there. And then I get a call in August from Coach Cooper since he stayed. He just got hired. Um, first time head coach, first year. It's in Nashville, Tennessee. Never been there. Uh, it's a historically black college. Uh, I think he was looking for some diversity on the staff. And uh, he had gotten in contact with one of our guys at Clemson. So he reached out to me and, you know, just called me and pretty much interviewed me. And after the interview, told me I had a week to decide and just give him a call back. So I ended up doing it just from the sheer fact of uh, they were going to pay for my master's. And I knew if I came back to coach high school basketball, you know, that would give me probably an extra $5,000 in my salary. Absolutely. Um, so I thought it, was a good, thought it was a good opportunity, but I didn't know Coach Cooper from Adam and never been in Nashville. And, you know, a lot of people at that time were like, you know, HBCU, that may not be a good thing for you. And I didn't worry about that at all because I had grown up, you know, playing basketball with people from all different backgrounds. So it ended up being the best decision of my life and also the best experience of my life because – you know, as a white male, I was able to go work on a, a historically black college campus, which was just a phenomenal experience with so many great people. And then I also met one of the one of my best friends in life, Coach Cooper. So it was just an incredible experience. Um, so, you know, from there, we were there for three years. We were able to build the program up. Uh, he did a phenomenal job, and we had success. And we uh, he was offered the head job at Miami, Ohio, which he accepted. Uh, so I go up there with him, and I go up there as the director of basketball operations to start because that's what I was at Tennessee State. And uh, after about a month, he was trying to fill his last assistant spot. I was actually able to secure a commitment from a local player, and so he ended up moving me up. And so I was an assistant at Miami for five years, and then unfortunately he was let go after the fifth year. Uh, we just weren't able to get the program where they wanted it to be. Um, but after there, I left and went down to Furman. I was an assistant at Furman for one year. Uh, then I left to go to College of Charleston. I was there for a year as director of recruiting and player development. And then I left Charleston last year because one of my best friends I grew up with, who also was at Charleston, got the head job at Presbyterian. And he asked me to come be his top assistant, which I had never had that responsibility role before. Uh, so I went with him. So here I am today at Presbyterian College. That's kind of the, the short story of it. So obviously your connection to our show is your time at Tennessee State with Coach Cooper, where you guys had success turning around the program in just three seasons. So what stands out to you from your time at Tennessee State and competing in the Ohio Valley? 
I probably should have said this when I went through my path, but a big, big reason why we were able to be successful at Tennessee State was not only Coach Cooper's leadership, but uh, in our staff that have phenomenal job recruiting and we actually Dana Ford who's the head coach at Missouri State actually signed a a 6'8 lanky kid uh, outside of Chicago at Proviso West I believe it is and his name is Rob Covington he starts for the Houston Rockets so (laughs) you know him finding Rob Covington was as big of a part of that uh, you know solving that puzzle as anything because when you get a player of that caliber and Rob is also a terrific person I mean, that instantly helps you with your culture and, you know, frankly, with just how good you are because he's 6'8 and he could stroke it. And uh, he had a phenomenal career, so that was a big part of it. Uh, so when I think of Tennessee State, you know, I think about the staff, I think about Rob, and then, you know, I think about there's countless other players that were very, very good. But, you know, it was just an incredible experience. And I think a lot of people that have never been to Tennessee State before don't realize, you know, how nice of a place it actually is, you know. You know when you when you walk in the gym, the Gentry Center at Tennessee State, it exceed it exceeds your expectations. And we always thought that was really really important because you have programs where kids kids look at your program, so they have these you know they have a perception, and then they walk in your gym, and sometimes it's a letdown. You know, when I was at Miami, Ohio. You know, you think about Wally Zerbiak, Ron Harper. You think about these great teams, Charlie Coles. And then you go walk in that gym. You know, it's just a, it's a letdown. You know, it just, it just is. You know, when you go into Tennessee State, I mean, it's, it pops out at you because it's a really, really nice facility. So I just think, you know, that facility, being in the great city of Nashville, which is just a tremendous, tremendous city, and then the people on the campus at, at Tennessee State. I mean, I think that's why. You know, it was such a such a great place to be and why we were able to have success. Well, I think Coach Cooper does a lot, you know, like you said, to create such a great environment. I know the first time you and I met, I was a first-time high school varsity coach and kind of called you guys out of the blue to come watch practice. And in all honesty, I've never had a bad experience going to any, any college coaches' uh, practice and stuff like that. Coach Cooper had such a culture that I remember the managers came over, introduced themselves, got us water. We had basketball, you know, the practice plan and everything just set up like that. Coach even came over and talked to us throughout practice. And I'm sure, you know, for somebody from my, my perspective, didn't have a lot to offer for him in terms of growing his program. I can only imagine how he would treat people, you know, coming in and the families are going to trust their kids with this guy. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and I'll, and I'll tell a quick story to that, but my first month at Tennessee State, I worked, and it was time for me to get my paycheck, and it was not there, and uh, he found out about it, and I didn't know what I was going to do, I, and my parents probably would have been able to support me, to be honest with you, but he found out about it, and he brought me in his office, and he wrote me a personal check for my first paycheck wow. at Tennessee State, and at that moment, I remember calling my dad afterwards, and he said, you know, the Lord's looking after you because this man that he's put in your life, this is a special man, and you are very, very blessed and lucky to be able to work for a person like that. And you need to make sure you understand that. And that and that really told me everything I needed to know about who he was. But, you know, to your point, he understood, you know, what the experience was supposed to be like. Uh, he got it from a life standpoint, first and foremost. You know, he wanted the kids to have a great experience. You know, he knew it was bigger than basketball. 
you know, he wanted you to take care of your family. If anything came up, there's a doctor's appointment. You know, you don't have to have that feeling of, you know, do I need to ask? Can I go? Do I not? He would get mad at you literally if you didn't go or if you did <laughs> ask. He just, said, he just said you should have already been gone by now. But he just got it from a personal standpoint. And I think that really bled over into the program and it really helped us tremendously. So since you've left Tennessee State and you've been in the MAC and the Big South conferences, how would you say the OVC measures up in terms of facilities, the coaches, the caliber of athlete that you see? Um, you know, it's a great question. I really got to kind of dig back in my mind. Uh, but just right off the cuff, I would say, you know, obviously the MAC is a, you know, from top to bottom, it's just a terrific, terrific league, one of the best mid-major leagues in the country. But I, I wouldn't put the OVC too far behind the MAC. Um, I mean, because those, those teams, typically what you have is, you know, the, the top four teams or so in the OVC, in my opinion, I mean, they can go toe-to-toe with the top in the MAC for sure. You know, but what ends up happening in these leagues is as you get to the middle of the bottom, that's where you see a lot of separation from league to league, in my opinion. So I think, you know, it goes MAC, then OVC, and then obviously Big South below OVC. But, like, when I was in the OVC, I mean, there was, you know, Murray State had Isaiah Cannon. You know, uh, Moorhead State had Kenneth Fareed. We had Robert Covington, uh, Tennessee Tech. Um, they had Kevin Murphy. You know, there was there was some pros in there, and it, they were big time. And then now, you know, obviously you got Belmont in there. I don't think anybody in the MAC would be rushing to schedule Murray State or Belmont right now. <laughs> I mean, I'd be shocked. You know, and then you add in, you know, you know what Penny's done at Tennessee State, going from nine wins to eighteen wins in a year. I mean, they're going to be a force to reckon with too. And, and I don't know the league as well as I did before. Those are just teams I'm familiar with. But you know, I don't think there's a ton of separation between MAC and OVC. But it's the MAC just top to bottom. It was just so brutal because you could, you know, one year we were in the bottom and we end up beating Akron on senior night, and they're the best team in the league. You know, and it's just. You, you don't see that stuff happen as much in the leagues below that, but in the MAC, it's just literally every night is a dogfight. So you're one of the three founders of the Rising Coaches organization. How did the organization come to be, and what does your group do? Uh, so when I was a manager at Clemson, our video coordinator was Andy Farrell. He's a current uh, he's a staff member at Dayton right now. Uh, with the men's team. So he was the video coordinator. And then our graduate assistant was uh, a guy named Adam Gordon, who is actually, he is running rising coaches himself. He was at SEMO the last couple years. Um, and then he left before this past year um, to just take over full time with rising coaches because of the growth that was experiencing. So it came about from us three literally just hanging out when I was in college one night and talking about how there was, a lot of clinics and professional development opportunities for, you know, for assistant coaches to become head coaches in college basketball. But there wasn't anything for the managers, for the graduate assistants, for the video guys to kind of move up the ranks, you know, and become assistants, uh, so to speak. So we thought, you know, what the heck, let's try to, let's try to create a platform for that. So that's really how it came about. And once, once we got the idea going, and we got some sponsors, and we put together a clinic. You know, the coaches, 
to be honest with you, where everybody was willing to help and willing to speak. So once you get a couple, you know, coaches, names, and all of a sudden you got people coming, I mean, that thing just kind of takes off on itself. So, you know, it's, it's geared toward professional development for, you know, support staff members. That's why it was started. So who all could be involved with this organization and how can they get involved overall? Uh, so really anybody can be involved at this point because of the, you know, the, the different um, areas that Adam is hitting now with Rising Coaches. But, I mean, it's very easy to get involved. I mean, there's a website. You know, you, if you go to the Twitter account, uh, at Rising Coaches, I mean, you can literally find everything you need. That will lead you to the website, uh, which is risingcoaches.com. Um, there's a tremendous amount of resources there and it's become membership based here recently. So, you know, there's a small fee. I think it's less than a hundred dollars that gets you for a year and you're a member and there is content coming in there every week. Um, they've been doing, you know, something on zoom every day, multiple times a day. And they've had all kinds of people on there. Um, so it's very, very easy to get involved with, and, there, and there's now there's high school coaches getting involved. So you got you got managers, even student managers, who are being really, really proactive about what they want to do with their career. Um, they're getting involved, so you know it's really not, um, you know, it's not like there's a group of coaches that aren't, you know, welcome or anything like that. It's it's all come, all welcome. So it's I think it covers everybody. So you mentioned where where people can find the organization at by going to Twitter and, you know, going to the website. So moving on from that, during your time in the Ohio Valley Conference at Tennessee State, where was your favorite place to eat at in Nashville? Uh, great question. Uh, there's so many different places in Nashville to eat at. Um, but my favorite place um, was actually a place called uh, – Jamaica way. Um, you know, when I thought about this question earlier, I was going to go with Jay Alexander's, but there was a lunch spot. Um, it was probably about 10 minutes from Tennessee state called Jamaica way and it's Jamaican food. And I'll never forget going there for lunch, probably once a week and getting the jerk chicken and they had all kinds of different sides, but it's just phenomenal, phenomenal Jamaican food. That'd probably be my favorite one. All right, well, Coach, we really appreciate you coming on and sharing your stories about uh, your time at Tennessee State and the Ohio Valley Conference. And uh, for all of our listeners out there, again, you can go to at Rising Coaches to learn some more about uh, their organization. I've I've perused it a little bit myself, and it's just really building up that coaching tree, I think, is the main thing that you're trying to do. And the number of people at that level are still willing to help, I think, is amazing. And you just you know, make a call, and you know someone will be willing to talk to you and help you out. So. Absolutely. If there's anybody out there that's interested in it and, you know, they want to reach out to me, they can feel free to do that as well. Um, whether it's Twitter, I mean, my cell number is 706-832-3529. I'd be glad to help anybody because, I, you know, I was a student manager years ago and I needed a lot of help to get to where I am. So I'd be more than willing to help anybody out there that needs help with it. You know, if they don't want to just go straight to a website and do that, they'd rather talk to somebody. They can talk to me. The one thing I did want to mention real quick before we let you go, um, while you were at Tennessee State, I mean, you saw a surplus of talent throughout the league. And when talking about the OVC, it looks like your guys' program this season will be playing at Moorhead State. That's right. Do you have yeah, any- we'll, we'll, 
Go ahead. No, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say, yeah, we're going to play Moorhead State this year at Moorhead State. Uh, that, they came to our place last year and uh, popped us pretty good. Um, I know Coach Bradlin pretty well. He does a really good job. So, you know, we'll have our hands full there. But, um, you know, OVC is something, you know, it's a league we look at scheduling with. So, you know, excited to be able to play somebody within within the OVC for sure. All right. Well, uh, best of luck to you, Coach Meyer, and hopefully uh, you guys will have success not only this year and continue to have success down the road, and we appreciate you uh, joining the show. Yeah, thanks a lot for having me. I really, really appreciate the opportunity and wish you guys the best of luck. And like I said, if anybody needs anything from me, uh, feel free to reach out to me. Okay, we will do that. Thanks, Coach. Yep. No problem. Take care, guys. You too. Take care. And just want to give a special thanks to uh, Coach Trey Meyer for joining the show today. Um, look, he's got a lot of, well, a lot of contacts. So if you're if you're trying to get into the coaching world or as a grad assistant trying to work your way up through a, you know, university, he seems like to be a guy that be somebody to know. Yeah, it's, you know, sometimes they talk about it's all about connections, and it's not necessarily having all these people that know you, but just someone that can put in a good word for you. I think my current teaching position is the only job I've ever had where I didn't know someone or know somebody that knew someone even in the education field So, of places that I've worked. So it's not just coaching. It's all fa- all facets of life just to kind of get you in the door. I tell kids all the time, like, you know, the idea is to get your resume off the stack and what you do with the interviews up to you. Yeah, you're exactly right. Well, let's move on to our Mount Rushmore segment here. TJ has Loyola. While I have Moorhead State, TJ, if you want to go ahead and get it going here with Loyola. Okay, well, I'll start out by saying that you may have Loyola fans may not be happy with this, and partially because I've left off Cameron Crutwig just because he's still there. But I definitely think if we were to do this fast forward two two years down the road, I, I don't see how you leave Cameron Crutwig off of this. But for the time being, with it, uh, him still being there, I thought we would uh, omit him for the time being. So I start off with Alfred Hughes. He was there from 81 to 85. He's the all-time leading scorer. He had 2,900 points. He's about 900 points of the second leading scorer in school history. Fifth in rebounding, ninth in steals. He was three-time league player of the year, and at the time it was called the Midwestern Collegiate Conference. It's still the Horizon League. They just changed their name a few years later. He averaged more than 25 points per game for his sophomore, junior, and senior year. Wow. So you may say he played more games, but I think if you just took those last three oh. years and I didn't break down the numbers, he would probably still be you know, in the, in the 1,800 to 2,000 point range. And I think he only, only averaged like 16 or 17 points a game as a freshman oh, wow. at that's, the time. That's just terrible. Yeah, yeah you know, <laughs> like, oh, well... <laughs> Good thing. You must have worked on something between your freshman and sophomore year. They averaged 20 wins per season in his four seasons. He was uh, has his number retired. He was the number one pick by the San Antonio Spurs in 1985. He only played one season in the NBA. He bounced around the CBA quite a bit, which was the predecessor to what we call now the, the G League. Okay. And uh, had spent a couple seasons in Europe as well. So, yeah, overall... Maybe you don't. You think of that '63 team for Loyola. You think of the team from a couple seasons ago that make the Final Four run. He's not in either one of those groups, but it really a standout. And like I said, just filling up the stat page uh, for the Ramblers during that time frame. So that's why he was my number one. Uh, and I, I don't necessarily put them in order. He's just the first guy I came across. Sure. So who did you have first? So the first guy I got on mine, 
Mount Rushmore for the Eagles is Kenneth Fareed. Uh, played at Moorhead State from 2007 to 2011, and he is on the stat record list uh, in more than just a couple categories. I mean, had a great career at Moorhead State, has turned it into a pretty solid career in the NBA as he's currently still playing, but he is third in all-time points with over 2,000 at Moorhead State, second in rebounds with nearly 1,000. Well, he almost had 1,700 rebounds, finished with 1,673. Led Moorhead State in block shots throughout his career, 241 during his time. Second in steals with 228. Two-time OVC Player of the Year. That was during 2009-2010 season, and then again during the 2010-11 campaign. Also, the NABC Defensive Player of the Year during the 2010-11 season, as well as a Wooden Award finalist during the same season. And the the accolades keep on continuing as he was also a consensus All-America second team selection. Helped Moorhead State get 84 wins plus two NCAA tournament wins. One was during that playing game, as we mentioned earlier in the show, against Alabama State. And then was also a big part of that win against Louisville in the first round of the NCAA tournament back in 2010-2011. And like I said, he is currently still playing in the NBA. But it's going to be hard for anybody to really top Fareed what he did at Moorhead State. I mean, one of the best players to ever come out of the Ohio Valley and was really a great get for uh, Coach Donnie Tyndall at Moorhead State during his time. Yeah, it's just really stands out when they're able to find those diamonds in the rough so to speak or maybe that kid that was overlooked and I mean if, if you look at all levels of basketball you talk to guys that play division three sports sometimes the difference between a division three guy and a division one guy is so minimal yeah. maybe a guy's just not wasn't quite big enough wasn't quite fast enough just but those guys that play d3 will tell you that it was every day you came to work you had to sure. try, fight for playing time or you're going up against good athletes so sometimes a guy like a Fareed can just figure it out or just gets his opportunity and really capitalizes on it second guy I had come from came from the 1963 national championship team for Loyola where uh, Jerry Harkness is the only consensus all-american in school history he's still fifth in scoring Retired number. They were sixty-seven and fourteen in his three years of eligibility. Wow! Because that was back to again to those times where a freshman couldn't play. It was a second-round draft pick by the New York Knicks. I think he played there a season. And he also played in the ABA for the Indiana Pacers. This is the guy that back in two thousand eighteen, he was usually one that they were doing the pieces on, and probably the most uh, recognizable footage that we had of Harkness during his time at Loyola is I believe it was in the second round they were playing Mississippi State in the NCAA tournament and there was what they what I've researched to be an unwritten law in Mississippi that they weren't supposed to play against African Americans. But Mississippi State went ahead and played the game in the NCAA tournament. So there's the picture of Harkness shaking hands with the Mississippi State captain and he talked about that the light, the, the flash bulbs just went crazy when he was shaking hands. And he's like, that's when I knew it was a big moment wow. that what well, something for that, for that and they should have happened. And they also in the uh, national title game, they actually beat a Missouri Valley school that uh, obviously Loyola wasn't in the league, but they beat the Cincinnati Bearcats in the 1963 final four. And that was after Oscar Robertson's days there. So second on my list, I got Ricky Menard, played at Moorhead State from 2000 to 2004. All-time leader in points scored with 2,381. Not only could he score 
was also a great passer. Second in assists with 417 and could play defense as well. Leads Moorhead State in most steals throughout a career with 245. OVC Player of the Year during the 2002-2003 season. And for his career, he nearly averaged 21 points per game across his four seasons and then helped lead Moorhead State to 66 career wins during the four seasons. So Phil, another one of those guys is just filling up the stat page. Yeah. Just did a little bit of everything and just, you know, capitalizes on his opportunity. My third guy is LaRue Martin, played at Loyola from 1969 to 1972. Still first in rebounding, had over 1,000 rebounds in only 67 games. Averaged a double-double for his career at Loyola and was taken number one in the 1972 NBA draft by the Portland Trailblazers ahead of Bob McAdoo and Dr. J, Julius Irving. Julius Irving was actually playing in the ABA at the time for the Squires, but in my research, they kind of led it back to had two great nights, LaRue did, back-to-back, and the second one was against Bill Walton of UCLA. Had 19 points, 18 boards going head-to-head with him, and that was in the midst of... UCLA's 88-game win streak. I think uh, Loyola ended up losing that game handily, but you're going up against one of the great franchises at the peak of their their time, you know, between Walton and Alcindor at uh, UCLA at the time. So they said that Portland Scout was there, was really impressed with him, and that kind of, we would say today in 2020, elevated his draft stock, <laughs> you know, from Jay Billis. And, uh, you know, capitalized on it and uh, played with Portland for four years, from 1972 to 1976. Well, I tell you what, I mean, to be drafted ahead of those those couple of big names, I, that that alone is a compliment right there. Yeah, coming out of college. I mean, that's, that's again, that's one of those things they can't ever take away from me. I hear, you know, some people talk about like, well, if they only play 60 baseball games and you win the World Series, there's going to be an asterisk. Not, <laughs> not, not, on, not next to my name when it says World Series champ. I'll take it every day of the week and twice on Sunday. Yeah. Uh, third on my list. Uh, Steve Hamilton, now this is going back going back quite a bit, played at Moorhead State from 1954 to 1958. But this was a very interesting guy to have on my Mount Rushmore, and I think you'll see why. Sixth in points with 1,829. Led, still leads Moorhead State in career rebounds with 1,675. So Fareed was just two behind Hamilton's rebounding record. 1985 Hall of Fame inductee for Moorhead State. After his playing career of college basketball, he played for the Minneapolis Lakers and the Boston Celtics. Now, while he was at Moorhead State, he was a two-sport athlete. He also played baseball for the Eagles during his time at the university. And so after his playing time in the NBA... He also had a lengthy Major League Baseball career, played 12 seasons in the MLB, had a career record of 40 and 31, and did pitch in two World Series. Now, he is the only player ever to play in an NCAA basketball championship, a World Series, and also be a part of an NBA championship series. So not only did he make it to a championship at the collegiate level, but played in the two big one of the two biggest stages right. for two of the professional leagues. So he was Danny Ainge plus way before Danny Ainge ever, you know, was, was. thought of. <laughs> yeah. So do you know who he pitched for in the majors or did we able to find that? I, I did a little bit. Um, I thought I saw something about the Yankees. Um, don't quote me on that. Um, 
So the Yankees in the 50s and 60s, that, that would have been a tough gig. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but then after after he got done playing, uh, he then went back to Moorhead State, coached 10 seasons, and also became uh, athletic director for well, the Eagles. Sounds like a guy that's just absolutely intertwined oh, yeah. with the university exactly. at uh, Moorhead State. Well, I round out my list with Blake Schilb. He was there from 2003 to 2007, and a lot just did a lot of everything. He's fourth in scoring fourth in steals, seventh in assists. He graduated as the all-time leader in three-point field goals made. He's second now. And what ultimately kind of gave him the edge when I was looking into some of these guys is he had a, he's had a pretty prolific playing career in Europe. He was a French Cup Finals MVP. He was a Europe Cup uh, champion. He was in the Czech League. He's been the league and cup champion twice and the French League and cup, cup champion as well. So... He's been, you know, around winners this whole time that he's been playing in Europe and pretty prolific career that to round it out. And like we've talked about before, that that's that's nothing to uh, disregard someone's level playing in in Europe. You know, Uh, there's plenty of guys who've gone over there and haven't been able to cut it for one reason or another. And here he is going into, you know, 13 or 14 years worth of playing professionally and getting to do what you love. uh, And still make very good money with it, too. Yeah. And, uh, you know how well-rounded you'll be. Imagine doing something like that and you get to go into something like international business. I've played in Czech, you know, the Czech Republic. I've played in France. I've played all over Europe. And the connections, like we've talked about all oh, yeah. show, that you're, you're going to build up and you don't have to get a real job yet either. No, you, you keep just working <laughs> out and getting better at your, at your game. Right. So the fourth guy to round out my list, um, Moorhead State. Some Moorhead State fans would probably agree with uh, he's a solid guy to have on your list. Others may may feel, well, you probably should have picked somebody that um, scored a few more points during their time at Moorhead State. Uh, but my fourth guy is DeMonte Harper, uh, played at Moorhead State from 2007 to 2011. Uh, 15th in points scored with 1,436. Fourth in assists with exactly 400, and was also top five in steals with 166. Now, the reason... I chose to put him on my list at number four is based on him being such a vital part of the Eagles NCAA tournament win against Louisville back in that uh, 2010-11 season. Uh, he hit the game-winning three-pointer to give Moorhead State the win over Fort C. Louisville during that uh, NCAA tournament. And I believe that three-pointer came with under five seconds left. He's been playing internationally since 2011 and currently playing for the Grand Canaria uh, organization, which is in Las Palmas, Spain. Wow. So still playing internationally, um, but what he was able to do with Kenneth Farid at the same time, um, I thought was was worthy of a spot, especially him being one of the key parts of why Moorhead State moved on in that NCAA tournament. And that was the guy that, I think Coach Lennox Forrester was trying to remember. He said that they had Kenneth Farid and that other guard during that time, and I believe it was uh, DeMonte Harper. Yeah, that would have made, made a pretty formidable duo oh, yeah. to match up with day in and day out because you always think, even at that level, there's one guy that you really want to stop, and uh, that creates some extra problems for you. Yeah. So that rounds out our Mount Rushmore for uh, this week with Loyola and Moorhead State. TJ, you got any final thoughts here to uh, wrap up the episode? Just once again, uh, I know we're going to be 
putting this out afterwards, but I hope everyone had a great Father's Day or, you know, all those things and be safe out there and keep it as we expand more and more out to what we can do day in and day out. So the one thing I do want to mention is um, another special thanks to Coach Trey Meyer for taking time out of his day to join the show. And during his time at Tennessee State was probably one of the best stretches of Ohio Valley Conference talent that has uh, been seen over the years. I mean, with Kenneth Fareed being there, Isaiah Cannon, Robert Covington, Kevin Murphy at Tennessee Tech, and, and there were other solid players too during that time. Um, I mean, the talent was off the charts. So many guys from that stretch went on not even just to play overseas, but have had lengthy uh, careers in the NBA and are currently still playing. Yeah, it's definitely got to think of it as one of the heydays, if not the heyday of the OVC. Sure. And hopefully we'll get to see both of our leagues return to that level of play. Yeah, absolutely. So that'll wrap up Episode 7 here on View of the Valleys. Again, a special thanks to Coach Trey Meyer for joining the show. For TJ Hoover, I am Chris Smith. Thanks for tuning in. Be sure to tune in next week as we give you our thoughts on which mid-major conference would match up well with the Missouri Valley and the Ohio Valley for their own conference challenge, like the Big 12 and the ACC challenge. Also next week, Connor Onion, the TV voice of the Southern Illinois Salukis, joins the show. We will also have our own Mount Rushmore on Missouri State and Murray State. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast on Apple and give us a follow on Twitter at ViewValleysPod. Happy Father's Day. Enjoy the rest of your week. Have a good one, everybody.